Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and I'm back with you over Zoom today. And I know I always say this is a special podcast and one I'm excited about, but um, in this case, I'm excited in, in a new and extraordinary way. Uh, not only am I going to talk to Chris Hammer, but uh, Chris Hammer's new book, Treasure and Dirt, is our selection for October's Booktopia Book Club Book of the Month. Uh, what does that mean for you? Well, it means a couple of things. It means we're going to make a big song and dance about it, which we would do anyway about a Chris Hammer book. But more importantly, it means we're going to sell it really cheap. <laughs> uh, if you're a book club member, which is really easy to sign up um, on our website, booktopia.com.au, uh, you can get the thing at a special members-only discount price for the whole month of October, $19.95, I believe, which is much cheaper than $32.99, um, which is a bargain for Chris Hammer. Chris Hammer really delivers a lot of value in his books. I can attest uh, to that. Um, and uh, Chris has been brilliant. And um, even with the lockdowns, has has signed a big stack of books for us at home. You go on his Instagram and, and see this photo of a man sort of uh, hiding behind a fortress of books. It's, it's something to behold. Um, so signed copies, uh, book club members, discount price for the month of October. I'm going to talk to Chris Hammond now about his new book, Treasure and Dirt. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Great to be with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for giving us some time. I just, I'm, I'm in love with this new thing. I think it has to be the most entertaining book I have read in the year of 2021, maybe in a lifetime. It's, it's an absolute wild ride. Uh, I was thinking about how we could begin to <laughs> jump into it. I, you know, the, the first impression the reader gets of this book is, is one that will just stay with them. Uh, it comes in the form of a prologue. And the first sentence is something like, it was a perfect night for ratting. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it would be, be something like that. Uh, tell us about, just, just give us this, a, a sense of, of what goes down just in the prologue of this novel. Yeah, I think we can talk, safely talk about the prologue. It's not really a spoiler. <laughs> spoiler. Um, ratters. It is a perfect night for ratting. What are ratters? Ratters are opal thieves. These are people who go down other miners' claims, usually in the middle of the night, very silently, very stealthily, and steal other miners' opals, dig them out of the walls of their mines, and, and then are gone before dawn. And it's a real problem. You know, ratters are a real thing. So uh, these ratters go down a mine, but they get a sense that there's something is wrong down there. And they discover the body of the opal miner, the guy who owns the claim. And he's not only dead, he's been crucified. And so they immediately, you know, panic, remove all traces they've been there and go. Um, but we do find out later on that they've had the good, the good conscience to actually put in an anonymous call to Crime Stoppers and say, hey, listen, some, someone's been killed here. And that's then... The book proper starts with the arrival of two uh, detectives, one a homicide detective and one just a, a normal detective. Um, so 
for those who've read my previous books, um, Scrublands, Silver and Trust, those books feature Martin Scarston, a journalist as a protagonist and his partner, Mandalay or Mandy Blonde. So this is new. This is a kind of a standalone book. Maybe it's the start, beginning of another series. But here we have two protagonists, um, Detective Sergeant Ivan Lukic, a homicide detective from Sydney, and he's thrown together with a very inexperienced young detective who's been based out of Burke, uh, Detective Constable Narelle or Nell Buchanan. And so they're thrown together uh, to investigate this murder in this very strange and rather wild town called Finnegan's Gap, which is way out west, western New South Wales, outback, somewhere up near the Queensland border. It is such a town you've created in the form of Finnegan's Gap. I think, I think you know, a rural noir, like you've, you've written here, uh, it has every element a book like that could ask for, and, and then some. Uh, this, this, this prologue that, that starts the whole thing going, finding a guy crucified down a mine shaft, um, and stealing away into the night like these ratters do. Uh, tell me, tell me about writing that, that prologue. It's just, it's such a powerful bit of writing in and of itself. Where does it where does it sit in the crafting process for you? Do, do you kind of craft the whole novel and then go back and say, how do I now uh, make this perfect? Or, or do you, did you sit down quite early in the piece and, and, and put that to page? I think it was this time around, I think it was quite early on in the process. I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I'm trying to uh, unpack. It's a long time the, back, I'm sure. What, one of my initial ideas was let's let's how can you possibly have a crime with two perpetrators who are kind of unaware of the existence of the other um which is a if you read the book that will kind of make sense but i was working out how maybe to do that then the idea of using that as a prologue then don't make sense because you find out you the readers presented with the same clues as the detectives, which is, you know, it's fairly common. When I wrote um, my first book, Scrublands, I was kind of learning on the job and it, it's got quite a powerful, like this book actually, it's got a very powerful prologue that grabs you in. And in that case, it's a priest shooting five people dead. Um, but in that case, I didn't actually write that prologue until draft six or seven. That book, Scrublands, had started with the idea of the of the journalist arriving in this dying town. And it was a very slow start. And I kept trying to spice up the start in all sorts of bizarre ways. But and then I don't know why, because it in retrospect, it is such an obvious thing to do. As I actually went, well, rather than him arriving in the town and always referring to this thing, let's just describe what happened. Um, so having learned that that is an effective sort of uh, technique, if you like, in Scrublands, I think it came more naturally to me in uh, Treasure and Dirt. That's interesting. I 
I just I just love that bit of writing. Um, and I love the new characters you've brought in too, Ivan and Nell. Tell me what it's like um, putting aside Martin Scarsden and Mandy Blonde and um, not only bringing these new characters to life and, and they're really rich, exciting um, heroes, but you're not writing um, from the side of the journalist anymore. You, you, you're in, you're in, you're following the footsteps of cops. So that's, that's gotta be something different for you, right? It is, it is. And, and I wasn't sure how I'd go doing that. So what happened was <clears throat> I was, I really liked Martin and Mandy and I'd grown very kind of attached to them as they sort of grew more and more in, in my mind and on the page. But what I realised after I'd written Scrublands is an important part of that book was Martin's own emotional journey. He's just not one of those protagonists that, that's kind of hands off and objective and it's a mechanistic kind of uh, crime puzzle. He's involved, he's got skin in his game. And then I continue that in Silver, where he returns back to his old hometown and confronts the trauma of his youth. And then in um, Trust, I did the same thing with Mandy's. We find out about her past. <clears throat> what happened then though, is then I was struggling. I, I couldn't just write a crime book, say this book and just have Martin and Mandy go and investigate, but not have any emotional skin in the game. And so I thought, well, let's give them a rest. I, I, I'd really like to go back to Martin and Mandy again, but let's give them a rest. Let's try something new. And so, um, uh, and so in this story, both Ivan and Nell, they're not objective, hands-off, you know, purely professional investigators either. For both of them, their past starts catching up, particularly with, with Nell. And so uh, they've got personal skin in the game. Their careers are under threat. Um, so they, they've got some interesting motivations as well, which I think just adds, a, it adds another layer, another depth to the, to the book. So it's not just a kind of a, an intellectual puzzle, you know, who killed this guy and why. There's actually some real emotions at stake. Yeah, well said. Uh, I, I love these two characters. Uh, tell, tell me about um, Nell, because, you know, as, you, as you're saying, skin in the game, she, she earned her stripes working this town of Finnegan's Gap, and, and it is a town like no other. Um, I think maybe, maybe if you just give us a bit of a tour of Finnegan's Gap, Martin. <laughs> Uh, what, what's there to see when you come to town? Uh, you've got a lake, you've got a cult, you've got some uh, very heavily armed squatters. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, you've got a couple of, there's a mad kind of religious cult that's mining opals that's very unpopular. Um, there's a couple of big mines nearby and they're these big billionaire, larger than life miners who are up there and you learn about this rivalry between them that goes back decades. So there's a squatters camp with a bunch of eccentric miners. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. It's actually um, 
I had this idea, just a seed of an idea about writing a book about mining. And, and I was thinking of locating it way out in the middle of nowhere in a, like in a big coal mine or something with um, a fly in fly out kind of camp. And that's where the crime was going to happen. And I was originally thinking, oh, you know, I've never been there. I've never been to the Flinders Ranges in South Australia. There's some big mines up there somewhere in South Australia. That could be the perfect place to go. And then COVID hit and the border shut and I couldn't get away. Now, I, I live in Canberra. The one place I could tra still travel to, this is halfway through last year, was into New South Wales. And so I was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll go somewhere there. And then just by chance, I was at the local shops and this woman walked past and she had an opal pendant. And I went, opals? That and the thing about opal towns and opal mining is it's it's not conducted by big conglomerates. They're not big, you know, yeah. ASX listed companies. They're very much sort of one man bands or partnerships. Almost the the way the legislation is set up, it's all, you can only claim so much land for an opal mine. So a big company can't do it. So I was I, I drove up to Lightning Ridge. And I was very lucky. There's some, some miners there. Helped me, took me down mines. And, and I saw these signs in the miners co-op about ratting and ratters and, you know, dobbing a ratter sort of thing. I went, oh, well, there's a, there's a good idea. Yeah. Um, but Finnegan's Gap is a kind of a much smaller, wilder, fictionalised version of Lightning Ridge, uh, which allows me to do things like change the the lay of the land around to suit the plot. And also means I'm not in danger of defaming anyone, anyone in real life. Because this, this is a pretty wild place, Finnegan's Gap. It really is a wild west town. And the, the phenomena of these small plot miners who, you know, as you say, they, they, they can only have small claims. There's the the big mining corps are interested in opals they're interested in rare earths or in coal uh and, and they're they're playing a different game on the on the outskirts of town but the town is is run by uh these classic characters um which which could almost come out of the old west you know they it's it's like a gold rush town uh and yeah you've got a you've got a squatters camp which i believe is called dead man's well uh, yep. And um, I've got to give mention to this because it's just pure gold. Uh, when when Ivan the detective goes for a wander through there, I, I think he clocks a armored personnel carrier <laughs> quite early in the novel, right? Yeah. And uh, Martin, there's there's a, a a famous line of Chekhov, right, where he he says something like, "When if there's a gun in Act One." It's yeah. a gun in Act One. It has to be fired in Act Three. And I, I thought to myself, well, well, that armored personnel carrier is going to go somewhere, and <laughs> you, you make us wait. You really do. And in, in the final moments of this novel, it's, uh, gosh, it's a real blitzkrieg. I mean, don't talk <laughs> about it, but wow. Uh, yeah, just, let's I not give, want... let's not give too much weight, Dan. <laughs> let's not give too much weight. <laughs> um. Tell me about the contrast of small plot mining and 
the corporate juggernauts and tell me about this kind of rivalry that's festering and there's a there's a character called bullshit bob who i just adored uh what's going on there so it again i don't i don't want to give too much away here but there is this history between these um this guy bullshit bob inglis and another guy called delaney bullwinkle and these these they're from the top end of town clearly they're billionaires right and so for ivan and nell any attempt to investigate them is completely and utterly fraught because these people wield real power i mean if ivan and nell want to investigate these sort of busted ass opal miners you know living this hard scrabble existence down there down their mines in you know in the middle of nowhere of course the police have got complete sort of power and authority there but when they start trying to find out what the big boys are up to they're pretty quickly you know warned off and that's part of uh i guess you know i, I don't want to over the pudding you know some observations about way that life actually works in australia but it also plays into what i was saying before about ivan and Neil ha having skin in the game and having to make decisions mm. about how far they they push that sort of side of the investigation if you like yeah i i i it, it struck me as really true the, the kind of characters these these blokes are um and, you know they, they seem like pastiche but you know the the mining magnates that, that we see on on telly in australia are uh in, in many ways just even more hammed up than these blokes uh were you inspired you had decades of work as an investigative journalist did you did you deal with the big mining corps um did i did i did a story in brazil about Rio Tinto shooting Darren Beros, the uh, the local uh, gold fossickers who were going into their into their mine, um, but that was that was a completely one-off story, and it, I mean it was a subsidiary of, of Rio. I should I should state, but in Australia, no. But I did do a bit of. I, I was based in Canberra a lot, so inevitably, particularly back in the sort of Hawke Keating era, economics were very important and trade policy and all of that sort of stuff. So, and then the mining boom, of course, what that meant for Australia. And I've, so I don't, I don't think I have any particular insights, but you're right in that some of the mining magnets that we have in Australia, you know, Clive Palmer, Gina Reinhart, Andrew Forrest, you know, they, they're you know they're larger than life characters um i hasten to add though um the characters in treasure and dirt are not actually based on any of, of them i think it'd be pretty hard to actually draw any parallels so they're not they're not kind of thinly disguised or thickly disguised versions of real people it was just this idea of of, you know, if I guess, I guess if I was writing the book and it was based in the US, they'd be tech billionaires because that's how you accumulate vast amount of personal wealth in America, right? But in Australia, the way that people get that vast, you know, multi-billion kind of personal wealth is through mining. Mm. And and they are 
um, you know, they're real celebrities and, and they're in a way they become above the law, um, which makes, you know, the, the action in this novel even the more juicy. You've also got, you know, we alluded to a cult that's operating, which is very mysterious. Uh, Nell, the um, junior officer, has a personal history in town. And Ivan's been flown in from Sydney to investigate this. And there's there's some question marks over Ivan as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot at play. Um, so, so Ivan, Ivan is... Ivan, yeah, go on. Ivan is not a brand new character. He's actually a very, very minor character, but he's in all three of the, of the Martin Scarston books. And in those books, he's just this kind of bit of a gopher, an offsider to the main police person, Morris Montefiore. And indeed, he and Morris are meant, are meant to go up and investigate these, uh, this murder, this crucifixion up in Finnegan's Gap. But at the last moment, Morris can't go for reasons that become clear in the telling of the story. And Ivan is sent by himself, and that's how he ends up with this very inexperienced offsider, Nell Buchanan. Um, so, as I say, it's an absolute kind of standalone book. You don't have to have read the previous three. Um, I mean, you can say that for any of those previous three, for that matter. But it is kind of set in the same universe to the extent that there are some minor characters that do continue on. So Morris Montefiore is mentioned. Martin Scarston is actually mentioned once or twice, sort of off, off screen, as it were, off stage, however you refer to that. And even, um, and even the rather obtuse television reporter, Doug Funkelton, gets a mentioned near the end of the book. Yes, uh, I think I think the fans will be really happy to to hear those mentions. Um, but you're absolutely right. This this thing stands on its own. You can you can read it as its own thing. Um, and I just I'm I'm sure people are going to discover you on this book, and then go back and discover the Martin Scarsden series. I'm very excited for that. Uh, there, there's there's a lot of hoo ha within the police within this novel, right? Um, it, in a way, it plays to the big kind of questions about time and the arguments that are going on around uh, how law enforcement should operate in, in society and you know, things like Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Um, uh, not, not that it, it directly works to those questions, but you raise, you raise questions about how law enforcement should operate you know, um, and there's uh, there's a lot of argy-bargy around the police closing ranks around our own um, and uh, any kind of collusion or, um, uh, you know, extracurricular operations on the op part of a police officer, even if they are done in, in, in good uh, moral standing, uh, being off you know, that's, that's, not, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, so the, the argument, I guess, at play is, um, should, should officers um, just operate by the book to very strict standards and just be kind of conduits of the law? Or are they there to, um, you know, impose morality on society or, or um, try and act and, and restore moral standing within ways that they see fit and we have to kind of trust them to do that? 
tell me about trying to dive into those really sticky issues around policing. It, there's a kind of, um, I think there's a bit of a trick to crime fiction, particularly when it's featuring police officers and uh, as protagonists. And that is that you want to give the sense of the real world, the sense of authenticity. But in other ways, you completely ignore it <laughs> in the sense that a lot of police work is very kind of boring and routine. And there's a lot of paperwork and, you know, ensuring that everything is done by the book so that the evidence is not ruled inadmissible in court. I mean, police often work in very large teams, for example, which would just become completely confusing if you tried to put it in a, in, in a book. And, um, and in the real world, they're often working several cases at once. So again, why would you put that in, the, in a book? And indeed, it's, it's often the case, I think, in crime fiction, where you get police officers who, if you like, do go off reservation. They're, they're not, they're, they're bending the rules or breaking the rules because they're being driven by a, you know, a, a more essential moral code than just the, you know, the, the police manual, if you like. Um, and that adds something to the, to, to the story. And I'm not, I'm not talking just about my book here, just this is a general observation about crime fiction. Um, there's a lot of differences, I think, between crime fiction and the real world. So typically at the end of a crime fiction book, um, the police officer makes the arrest, they catch the killer, for example, and that's the end of the book. Whereas in real life, they're only halfway through because really that's, it's almost like when the job starts and they're trying to bring all the evidence together and it, it only finishes at the end of the, of the trial, okay? So in all sorts of ways, when you're writing about the police, you're not really following real life. Um, it's a kind of a, it's a heightened version, if you like, a fictionalised fictionalized version. And of course, in a crime fiction book, by the end of the book, you, re you always know what has happened and who's guilty and that sort of thing. Whereas unfortunately, of course, in real life, in fact, many of the most fascinating cases in, in true crime are the ones that aren't resolved because then you can speculate, you know, like who was Jack the Ripper, right? <laughs> Whereas yeah, in a crime yeah. fiction book, you can't, you've got, to, you've got to say who Jack the Ripper was, if that makes sense. Mm. Just on that, Chris, there's a character that we meet somewhere in the action here who, who really stood out for me and... And he's he's not a he's not a major player in the novel, but but he he comes in and he certainly has an impact. And and he's 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 he, he's from regulatory standards or from a kind of internal affairs um, part of the police department. And he gets flown into town um, to pick apart these characters and and what they've been up to um, and other dealings that you know we can allude to, but we won't discuss. <laughs> but uh, uh, tell me about. Uh, placing that character in the scene and uh, what's his MO? He's, um, <clears throat> what, he, what his motivations are, um, I'm not going to explain because it's a bit 
be too much of a spoiler, but this is a guy who is known as um, Feral Phelan, and he's from the professional standards kind of branch. So he's, he's one of those police officers who investigate other police officers. And so he is sent or he comes, you don't know where, if, it's, if he's working on his own volition, to kind of investigate Ivan and Nell to see if they've been breaching rules, if, if they have indeed you know, started bending, bending the rules. And so that's, in, in one sense, he's just there as a, as a device, if you like, to add pressure to them and, and, and strengthen their kind of emotional sort of narrative arc. But in another way, he's a character in his own right and, and represents mm. something. So I think in this book, but it's, it's very common, I think, in, in crime fiction, is it often taps into issues of concern in society at that time. Um, and I don't think it's this kind of conscious decision by the authors, or certainly not in my case, you go, oh, this is a hot button issue. I'm going to touch on that because it's relevant. Or, you know, God forbid, oh, this this will um, this will be more appealing to readers. I think it's more like, oh, I'm trying to think up a plot. What what is concerning people right now? What's on their mind? And so, you know, in a in a complete sort of thriller, you know, end of the market. You know, the bad guys used to be the Russians, and then there, there was there was Glasnost and whatever. And they, for a little while, it was sort of apartheid South Africa where the bad guys and North Korea, and then it was Islamic terrorists. And right now, if you were writing that sort of thriller thing, the temptation would be very much to have right-wing white extremist type of groups because of what sort of emerged in the US with it, you know, with say the, the Trump election or whatever. People do, kind of, so in the more mainstream kind of crime investigation space, I think there was a period there where, you know, serial killers were, were worrying people. So as a writer, you'd go, what's, what's going to engage, you know, what, what are people, what's, what's going to hook into people and their imaginations of serial killers? So now you've, you've had other issues. So there's quite a, there's some really fine books at the moment. Um, addressing uh, domestic violence, you know, and sexual predation and whatever. In it. This is in the wake of the Me Too movement. So a couple of the really good books I've read lately are The Family Doctor by um, Deb Oswald that addresses yep. issues of domestic violence. Um, and just recently, um, Before You Knew My Name by Jacqueline Bublitz, which is Oh yeah, you know it's 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 a murder story, but it's narrated by the victim, and I think mm. her point was, hey, in all these crime books, the victim is just like a, a vehicle; they're, they're just given a second thought because it's all about the protagonist. And there was a period back, you know, a while ago where there was a lot of emphasis on the perpetrators. You know, people were often writing, at least some of the book from the point of view of the perpetrators. So it's interesting. So I don't think it's this sort of um, deliberate objective decision. I think crime writers just sort of tap into a bit of the zeitgeist. So people like Michael Connolly in America sort of, they kind of key into concerns about the inequalities that 
are there in America, the inequalities in income, in race, you know, whatever. And I've, I don't think he's going out of his way to make some political statement. I think it's just there in the background and adds a kind yeah. of realism to, to the narrative. It absolutely does. Um, and and this 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 novel is is gorgeous to dive into. It it has that realism, but it's also in its own world in Finnegan's Gap. You know the the isolation of this community uh, and just the the sheer make or break factor of everyone in this town has has you on edge, and it's just it's the perfect place to for a miner to get crucified. <laughs> <laughs> so many good people could be involved. Uh, you really created this the, the perfect little story. What? What? How? How have you evolved? Um, you know, you're four books in now in 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 uh, thriller writing. Uh, how is it evolving? Where, if you look back at what you were doing when you were um, toying with putting together Scrublands, um, and compare that to where you are now, um, how's it going? And and where do you think you're going to take it in the future? Because you're obviously having a lot of fun. Look, I think you get you get better at some of the craft skills, and hopefully you improve. I think probably better at perspective, in, in the sense that you pick up earlier if something isn't working or it's too slow, whatever. Whereas Scrublands, in particular, is very much learning on the job. But you know, that said, it doesn't mean that every book's going to be better than the one before it, because at the at the heart of the book and whether it works or not isn't you know your craft skills it's the power of the story itself um so i my books kind of i don't plot them out i try to but they just continually kind of evolve as i'm writing as new ideas pop up one one thing i have tried to do with the books more or less consciously is as develop the way the structures a bit. And so to, to explain what I mean by that, um, Scrublands is quite a complex book in that it's got four or five different plot lines operating in it. But in another way, it's very simple. It's a straightforward um, narrative told essentially from Martin Scarston's point of view. And it begins at the beginning when he arrives in town and finishes at the end of the book. There's no chronological kind of shifting around. So in that sense, it's about the simplest kind of narrative style you could have. Then in uh, the next book, Silver, it's similar, except there's a lot of flashbacks. So there's a slightly different time frame. In Trust, there's two points of view. So Martin tells half the story and Mandy tells half the story. And it's rather... Yeah, that was really interesting. And it's rather formalised in that, in you get a chapter from Martin, then you get a chapter from Mandy and, and back. This one, you've got the two point of views. It's Ivan and Nell, but it's much more fluid. So they're switching backwards and forwards within, cha within, within chapters. Um, so uh, maybe it's a little bit more natural. So in that, in that extent, I'm learning more. And the book that I've just started thinking about, I mean, don't hold me to this because I say, you know, they, they evolve. We'll have three point of view characters and probably three separate timelines. So Ooh. in that sense, it's getting more complicated, more ambitious. But at the end of the day, 
that means nothing if the story doesn't work. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the power of the story that's going to decide, you know, how readers respond to it, I guess. Do you have an agent and uh, is that agent pushing for these books to become TV adaptations? Because there's, there's just a wealth of character um, and place in these novels and I'd, I'd love to see them on screen. Um, I do have an agent, the wonderful Grace Heifetz at Left Bank Literary. Um, and yes, um, she managed to option Scrublands before it was published. Um, wow. operating, operating actually through a specialised page-to-screen agent based in London. Um, and it's optioned by two Australian production companies, uh, Easy Tiger and uh, Revlover. It's being developed. Uh, will it actually get made? Not sure, don't know until, until, you know, until the cameras start rolling, but yeah. they, are, they are developing it. And if it's made, and of course, if it's successful and it rates well, then the intention would be for them to go on and, and make uh, Silver and Trust. Um, and then after that, who knows, maybe move, move on to, to this book. But you know, that's a, that would then be a long way in the future and so many things could happen between now and then. But look, finger, fingers crossed um, that Scrublands will, will get made uh, before too long. Yeah, oh, I just, I can't wait to see it in, in whatever form. <laughs> it's such a great story and they all are. Um, one more question and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you in peace. Uh, yeah, even with the pandemic, uh, uh, kind of hanging over us and, and dampening our efforts to, um, you know, your know, author's efforts to get out there and, and, and meet people and, and sell their books and, and, and do the wonderful things they do. You must be hearing so much from people that are discovering your novels. Uh, there's so much love for these books. Uh, what's, what's the most interesting bit of feedback you've been getting? I, what's something that's stuck out for you? <laughs> Or something that made you laugh. Okay. The weirdest one I think was, was last year in the heart of um, lockdown, particularly you know, overseas, I got a message from a guy in England who said he was in lockdown. He was an old muso and he was using lockdown to write a bunch of songs, kind of post-punk style. And he's getting a band together. They were going to record different people in different countries, mix it all together. And he asked if it would be okay if they named their group Mandalay Blonde. So, <laughs> and he sent me some tracks and it's, it's pretty damn good. And I thought that is the weirdest thing, that there's a guy in lockdown in London who wants to call his post-punk band Mandalay Blonde. Oh, that's that's wonderful. I'm going to start a band and call it Bullshit Bob now. <laughs> and it'd be have to, have to be more of a country band, I think. You know, like a <laughs> Woolshed Woolshed band with a with a what do they call it? A lager phone. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Chris Hammer, for being on the Booktopia podcast. As always, it's been a blast. Thank you so much, and 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 thank you so much for selecting Treasure and Bird as the Booktopia. Um, book club selection for the month. 
Oh, absolutely. Thank you for the mention. Uh, get a copy now from booktopia.com.au. And as mentioned, uh, there's a special price for book club members. It's very easy to sign up. You can do that online as you go and get in quick if you want to get a signed copy as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au Thank you.